from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. On this episode of Newt's World, you're going to get to meet one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with, somebody I was a colleague with at the American Enterprise Institute, and somebody for whom I have the highest respect. My guest fled a traditional Muslim upbringing in Somalia in 1992 at the age of 23. She went to the Netherlands to escape a forced marriage. From there, her life changed. She became elected as a member of the Dutch parliament and an outspoken advocate for women's rights. Today, she is a research fellow at the Hoover Institute, host of the Ayan Hersi Ali podcast, and author of the new book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, a follow-up to her 2007 New York Times bestseller, Infidel. She also recently authored an article in Unheard entitled, Europe's Guilty Conscience, EU leaders willfully misunderstand the problems of Muslim integration, which caught my attention. And Hersi Ali, welcome and thank you for joining me. Newt, thank you very much for having me. I thank you again for your kind words. It was an honor to meet you and a privilege to be your friend and colleague. You've done a lot of great things. Our audience they're going to be fascinated by your life's journey. Would you mind sort of starting at the beginning? When did you begin to realize that you wanted to do something beyond the traditional and that you were prepared to take the risks of actually leaving your home country? Well, I left my home country where I was born with my mother and siblings, and I was too young to have made that decision myself. 
I was born in Somalia and my family moved to Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia and Kenya. But when I was 22 years old in 1992, my father decided that he was going to choose, as is traditional in Somali culture, he was going to choose my husband for me. And at the time I was 22 years old, I didn't like the man that he chose for me. And instead of going to Canada to join him and be his wife, I fled to the Netherlands and asked for asylum, and I never looked back. I mean, had you met this guy, or did you just reject the whole principle? I met him, and as, again, required, I asked him about his interests and what he thought of a future together. And he made it very clear to me that I was to be submissive to him and produce at least six boys for him. And that turned me off beyond the fact that I thought he wasn't intellectually curious, didn't read. And I just imagined repeating my mother's life. And my mother was a victim of her circumstances. And I thought, that's exactly what I don't want. And that drove me away from him and gave me, as you know, people say, the courage. But I tell you, it's more of a terror of having to lead a life where you have absolutely no control over your own circumstances or destiny. So how did your mother react? Was she sympathetic or was this all a big shock? It was a big shock because obviously that was behavior beyond the bounds of what's allowed. And she was very much saddened by that, angry, confused, resentful. But I still talk to her today and I think part of her may just have, have come to accept that in hindsight, it wasn't such a bad decision. I don't know. I just hope that that's what she thinks. <laughs> when you went to the Netherlands, you initially worked as a translator for Somali immigrants. What did you learn while being a translator? I learned a great deal. I think probably of all the life lessons, that was a very, very important period for me. First of all, I learned the difference in the two different cultures Translating for the Somali community meant that I didn't only have to interpret their words into Dutch. I also had to translate the culture, their background, the things that were holding them back, and then do the same thing from Dutch into Somali. So things that Dutch take for granted, such as individual freedom, individual responsibility, the whole notion of being equal before the law as men and women, the concept of tolerance. I learned all of these things actively as a translator interpreter. I remember one incident, this might make you laugh, but I was translating for a mother and her six or seven year old child was beating up other children and the mother was called to school and she was scolded for her son's behavior. And she said, but I actually encouraged him to beat the children up because he was called names. And that may seem something small, but I remember as a child growing up in Somalia and these other countries, we were taught by the people who took care of us to defend ourselves with violence. And you come to countries and cultures that pretty much have banished violence out of their lives. And these were, for me, not just learning something new about new culture, but getting the opportunity to compare these cultures and then make a decision and reach the conclusion that, in fact, the Dutch way of life was superior to 
my Somali Islamic culture. And I think that, again, not only shocked me, but it also shocked and offended a lot of people who share a background with me. You went through this sort of journey of self-awareness and ended up working with the writer and director Theo Van Gogh on a short film called Submission, which criticized the treatment of women in Islamic society. That aroused sufficient hostility that Van Gogh was murdered. Who was he? Because most Americans won't know this story. And why did this short film get him killed? So Theo Van Gogh was one of the smartest, funniest, and bravest people I had met in the Netherlands. He was Vincent van Gogh, the famous painter, was his great uncle. He was a man of the left and a man of the establishment, a filmmaker, an artist, an author. He had some newspaper columns, and he took great pride in offending people. It was just his way of testing the boundaries of what was acceptable in Holland. And he had this reputation that he had offended pretty much everyone. And then along came the Islamists. And when he started to mock Islam, just the way he would mock Judaism and Christianity and other cultures and religions, he was told by the people who cheered him on to stop it. That this time he was beating up on vulnerable people and that he was wrong to engage in what he had always engaged in. He defended himself by talking about the freedom of speech. And when he approached me, I was a member of parliament, and he said, well, you talk all these things about women's rights. What can I do to help? And at that point, I had been looking at using art basically as a form of expressing what was done to women and what was supposed to be done to women and was prescribed in the Quran. And I had this idea that I was going to write this on dolls. And he said, no, we can get actresses and I can produce it. And so that is how our collaboration came about. And Mohamed Bouyeri, the man who killed him, was a young man. I don't think he was born in the Netherlands. I think he was raised in the Netherlands, but radicalized in the Netherlands. And he plotted to kill Theo van Gogh and did that, stabbed him, tried to behead him, and then left a long rambling fatwa on his body for me. It's just a terrible experience and a terrible loss for Theo's family, Theo's son, and the Netherlands, frankly. It's tragic. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats 
even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. I sort of skipped over a remarkable achievement on your part. How do you go from being a Somali emigre to having a parliament seat? Well, this is, I always have to tell the story of 9-11-2001. I was working for a think tank, a social democratic think tank in the Netherlands. And that event was, I would say, probably the most striking event in my lifetime. And everybody was trying to explain what happened. And I took the position within the think tank that the men who committed the atrocities in New York and Washington were motivated by their faith. That sort of put me in the category of infamy for many people. But my boss asked me, could you please stop, you know, commenting on 9-11 and help us understand how you assimilated into Dutch society within just 10 years. And I explained that I had no constraints and that if you emancipated Muslim women living in the Netherlands, you could achieve integration at a faster pace than what we were seeing. And that then prompted the Liberal Party, which this is classical liberal, that's the free market party in the Netherlands, to invite me to come and run for office. And I did that. And I thought that by articulating these problems, we could get to a place where policies of assimilation, this is the word we use in the US, would be fast-tracked. I was wrong. That's not exactly what happened. So now you're in the parliament and you've worked on this film. And at that point, you begin receiving death threats. And they were very real. And apparently you had to actually move to secret locations just to survive. That's right. The death threats against me by the Islamists started with my public comments on 9-11-2001 and beyond and the treatment of women within Islam. And the reason why I'm alive is because I had accepted the protection 
that was provided to me by the Dutch government. And unfortunately, Theo van Gogh had rejected that police protection. I had in those years lived uh, from safe house to safe house and at times even was flown to the United States in a military plane to hide as an active member of parliament. That was a very strange time. And did they just get tired of protecting you because you end up resigning from parliament? No, I resigned from parliament because the Minister of Immigration and Integration took away my citizenship. And if you're not a citizen, you can't be a member of parliament. So that's when I moved in 2006 to United States and came to work for the American Enterprise Institute. But didn't the Dutch government actually come back and say that you were a citizen? Yes, and the government fell, and the minister had to resign. There was a lot of drama about that. And she had seized on the fact that when I came to the Netherlands, I hadn't told the government about my story of fleeing a forced marriage because it was made very clear to me that you don't get asylum on those grounds. And so I had tailored my story to the rules that help you get asylum. So she said that I had lied. And it's true, I had lied in 1992. But in 2002, when I was approached by this political party leadership, I did tell them the truth about lying. But I think for her, it was politically expedient to take my citizenship away and then create this huge media drama. There's a lot more extremism in the Netherlands or Belgium or a variety of places than people have any notion of. Europe, in that sense, seems to be almost incapable of coming to grips with the level of threat that is gradually infiltrating the society. And the reason is because left-wing parties and politicians and commentators, they have built fences of taboo around the issues of immigration, of Islam, the failure uh, to assimilate immigrants from Muslim societies. And because of these taboos, the problems are now entrenched. And I don't see how France or Germany or Sweden or even the UK are going to deal with these parallel societies that they've created, communities that actively reject the values and the norms and the laws of the host society they live in. So what's happening, and you see this in France in some pretty horrifying ways with a teacher being beheaded for having said the wrong things as measured by the more extreme Islamists. Are you seeing not just Muslim women, but also women in general in these European cities beginning to be more cautious about exercising their rights and about appearing to be different? Absolutely. That's the subject of my latest book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of the Rights of Women. The book is summarized in that subtitle. It's now not only Muslim women who have to fear Muslim men. It is just women in general, and in particular European women, who fought for their emancipation and took their freedoms and their sense of equality to men, and especially their safety in the public space, they took all of that for granted. And now they have to find themselves making the same mental calculations that most women outside of the West do, which is, if I venture outdoors, I might get into trouble. So 
you know, considerations such as covering yourself, taking a different route. Women exercise in public. They jog in the park. European women, some of them are thinking, well, that might not be safe anymore. And all of these changes are happening because of that sudden influx and huge influx of immigrants from cultures where women are not respected. And the leadership continues to place a taboo on these issues. There are some exceptions. I found an exception in Denmark. I found exceptions in Austria. I see that the conversation in the United Kingdom is becoming more and more open. But again, you will find neighborhoods in parts of Europe where you will not see a single woman. And that is astonishing. And it's happened in a very short period of time. And that's because they're coerced into staying indoors? Well, because when they go outdoors, they're assaulted, they're harassed, they're groped, they're objectified. And those institutions that are supposed to enforce the law are doing very little about it. So these women are then left to themselves and they're making personal decisions not to venture out or to move to safer neighborhoods. And the more they move, you know, the more these neighborhoods become the proportion of the population in a given neighborhood with a large Muslim immigrant community that is willing to live there and take those threats and risks is very minimal. So they have a phenomenon of what is called, in the Netherlands we call it white flight. You know, you go to your city council, you go to your local politicians, you try to make changes, you fail. And then you just make the decision to vote with your feet and move to a different neighborhood. And so you have neighborhoods now that are becoming almost entirely Muslim and where informally Sharia law is enforced. In your book, you point out that in Denmark, an immigrant population of around 6% is in fact providing 34% of the convictions for rape. The threat's genuinely real. It's not necessarily somebody setting out to offend you, but you're at risk by definition just by being in public. That's true. And again, that statistic is only the tip of the iceberg because some of these research data that I find was very hard to come by. Again, because of this whole taboo, these topics have been made so controversial, it's very difficult to come by exact numbers. But yeah, that number is telling. And if you live in a neighborhood where, as a woman, you know the risk of being raped or subjected to some kind of sexual violence is real, and you know who the potential perpetrators are, and your local politicians, the prosecutors, the law enforcement, they're doing very little about it or nothing then, you know, you make your own personal decision. We talk about this erosion. That's what you see in these neighborhoods, as that women are self-erasing. They're just not going there anymore, except those who can't afford to leave. And this, again, this then takes us to, it's not just an issue of immigration and the failure to integrate immigrants, but it's also a class issue. So people with low incomes who can't afford to get away from the unintended consequences of immigration, they are the ones who are left to bear the burden of the irresponsible decisions, in my view, of their political leadership. Why has it been so hard for politicians and the news media 
to acknowledge that this surge of migrant sex crimes exists? They just keep on playing this misunderstanding game. They insist that unskilled labor is great for advanced economies. There's this display of compassion. I think of it as fake compassion. I don't really think they care about immigrants that much. I think it's the ideological fulfillment along with the potential of winning elections by making immigrants citizens very quickly. There's a cynical sense that those immigrants then vote left. And then there are these people who tell the stories, and usually they're the same people, the stories of the past misdeeds of European countries, either because of their colonial history or because of the terrible events of the Second World War, in particular the Holocaust. And so these are the reasons that people throw out this postmodernist attitude, what we now call woke in America, that is very much applied to immigrants in European countries where trying to assimilate them into the value system is rejected as being colonial, ethnocentric, Eurocentric, and xenophobic. And the people who are pushing these ideas are not the ones who are affected negatively by immigration. They're in their ivory towers when they're in academia or they're, you know, the politicians who are protected. And so they don't seem to understand what it really means when your neighborhood changes for the worse. And there's nothing you can do about it. I've been very struck by a parallel phenomena here that if you're wealthy enough, you can talk about defunding the police because you live in an enclave very often with development with police. But the people who really get crushed by those policies are the very poor who are trapped into violent neighborhoods. And I think in that sense, a serious class analysis of who's being hurt, particularly among women, by the rise of an Islamist extremism would be very sobering for people who claim they care about the poor. And Newt, I want to add to that, they don't even necessarily have to be Islamic extremists. Just simply by coming from places where women are just not respected and having these large numbers of people and then dumping them in the neighborhoods that are already facing social economic challenges. I think that class analysis that you just spoke about, it has to be done in general for immigration, and then maybe in particular how radical Islamists affect the poor, but it's a story of class. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I think I've heard you talk about this before. It is the norm in much of Islam to have women oppressed. It's not universally true, but your point that it's not Islamic extremists who engage in a great deal of this activity. It's just people who are following within the cultural framework that they see as normal. Absolutely. I mean, it probably was a subject of debate 20 years ago when people could claim that they were barely acquainted with Islam. But now anybody who wants to do any real research can see for themselves. For Islamic terrorism, you could explain that as a radical or a radicalized version or strain within Islam. But the treatment of women is commonplace. Now, that's not to say that every single Muslim man is a misogynist. But in general, misogyny is accepted and encouraged in Islam. And at least in Great Britain, there have been a whole series of stories about the degree to which various gangs, sometimes Pakistani, groom young women of all backgrounds, not just Muslim, 
and basically moved them into the sex trade and into human trafficking, and that it occurs on sort of a stunning scale, and the police almost willfully avoid noticing it. Yes, in the UK, they did that for a long time. And these Pakistani gangs were actually targeting white lower class. That's people with very low incomes. So they were targeting white girls, many of them, you know, around the ages of 12, 13, 14, and then trafficking them. And this problem was, in my view, probably one of the biggest failures of subsequent British governments on the local level and on the national level, where these children were betrayed to no end because of political correctness. You know, it's really interesting. My wife, close to when she was the ambassador to the Vatican, got deeply involved both in human trafficking, which has a huge surge coming out of Africa into Italy, but is also a worldwide problem, including right here in the United States. And she also got involved in in the whole question of religious liberty and the way they interact. The world is substantially more dangerous than most of us in America understand, and danger at a personal element, 11-year-old girls who suddenly disappear and who have been sold into what is in effect slavery. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. 
I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. And I have to ask you, you talk about the misunderstanding game that you play with your son and that this game relates to the issue of immigration. What is the misunderstanding game? <laughs> so I have a nine-year-old son who's very bright, and he tries to get screen time out of me when I don't want to give it to him. And when he's asking for permission, he says, can I play Among Us? It's one of the games he likes to play. And I pretend that I don't understand that. And I say, but you are Among Us. What do you mean? And that game with my son, is it's fun. Uh, it gets him away from the screen. And it gives us time for banter. But the misunderstanding game that European leaders, and in particular those on the left, play with their populations is not fun. When the European population say, please, let's reconsider this whole open borders thing and it's out of control immigration and bringing unskilled people into Europe and then all the unintended consequences, negative consequences for women, for gays, for Jews, these political leaders, they throw out reasons of compassion. They say they're great for the economy and you know, all these things that we talked about, they say, but immigrants, they're just human beings. We all wanted the same thing. And, and that's what I described as a misunderstanding game. This sidestepping of the issue year after year, decade after decade, as the problems get bigger and more entrenched. And as in many countries, such as France, they're now going through a crisis in social cohesion. I don't think Britain is that far behind or Germany is that far behind. And interestingly, Newt, all of these leaders, when they're doing their sidestepping and playing their misunderstanding game, they say, we can't talk about these issues because we're going to empower the far right. Now, what do you see that in 2021, because they ignored or failed to address the issues of borders, of immigration, of integration, the only movements and parties that are addressing these issues and gaining the confidence of the voters are the far right in Europe. So it's totally counterproductive. And isn't that in part because the far right has broken through the moral quandary of wringing your hands and being unable to articulate what's going on because it would be so, quote, politically incorrect. And once you cross that watershed, and you start talking about it, you become more militant because you're now looking at a new and a different world than the one that the elites are allowed to think about. Absolutely. I mean, again, look at France. Some of the policies that are being discussed now in the French Senate were unthinkable five or ten years ago. And because of the rise of Front National, which again in the polls are doing very well, I think that's what's pushed the French government into considering these far-reaching constraints on liberty. Remember when they ignored attack after attack, the connection between terrorism and the ideology that the terrorists use. And for a long time, they didn't want to do anything about the ideology. But then they got 
these crazy attacks, the theater in Paris, Bataclan, the guy who took the truck in Nice and murdered over, over 70 people, it's after those attacks that they started to put France into what they call national emergency. That is, from one day to the next, the national government saying that they're going to constrain the liberty of every Frenchman. And this is how counterproductive it is. And if it weren't so tragic, it would be comical. Is For a long time, they refused to do nothing because they didn't want to constrain the liberties of the individuals who were plotting these mass attacks. Now, everybody's liberty is constrained, without any question. Maybe I'm too old-fashioned, but it does strike me that when you have a teacher's head cut off, that that's sort of a signal that something has gone profoundly wrong. Yeah, but now they're at a place where they have so many people within the radicalized community who are very much prepared to cut off the heads of teachers and more than teachers. The thing I'm also seeing here in the United States is that we're creating a radicalized community that isn't necessarily immigrants, but it's people who think it's okay to shoot a policeman, to wage war on the police, to go out and arrogantly stand there in public, destroying a police car, to close down a building or to threaten the life of somebody. I mean, in a sense, we have our own domestic radicalization underway that is very parallel to the radicalization being produced in Europe from immigrant populations. I think maybe the one in the U.S. is in some ways worse because it's infected academic institutions. It's now gone down all the way to K-12. It's spread to the corporations. It's spreading to the administrative state. This notion of criminalizing and demonizing the rule of law and the institutions that uphold the rule of law I think in many ways, this is actually worse in America. I think that's right. And Macron, the president of France, said this recently, that American radical ideas, many of which started in Paris, are now so dangerous that they have to actively be militant against the American wokeism, if you will. Yeah. But it's amazing. Well, listen, I want to just say personally, having known you, I think since you first came to the U.S. at the American Enterprise Institute, I am really honored that you would do this podcast but i'm also really proud of you personally that you have persevered you've run real risks and you have calmly and enthusiastically stood for what you believe in and i think you're making a very significant contribution to the debate that we have to have if the west is going to survive well newt thank you very very much Thank you to my guest, Ayan Hirsi Ali. You can read an excerpt of her new book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. 
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.